Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Hey, um, can we do this just to make Jen feel comfortable? Can we all um, just look around and either wave or if you want to stand up and bow to someone here uh, as a way of showing your, your uh, love and your, maybe your ethnic heritage. Um, let's, let's do that. Let's stand and just to maybe three, four, five people. And then if you're worshiping online, you can do the same. Say hello to Jen. Say hello to James and Lauren. Uh, Chloe, Zoe, Phoebe, say hello to someone you don't know. If you're worshiping online, feel free to drop a message in our chat box and say hello as well. Right. I want to begin this morning with um, just a quick informal poll, and you can do this if you're online as well. Um, in our world, I think, you know, we, we know that our world is filled with stuff, right? Stuff just occupies our lo- lives and, excuse me, stuff occupies um, all of our living spaces, um, we just got a bunch of stuff within our, our, our lives, our homes, our apartments, our living and dwelling spaces. Um, I want to know, like, how many of us are keepers? Like, we like to keep things. How many of us are tossers? We like to throw things away. And how many of us are givers? We like to give to other people. So the keepers are the ones who say, you know what, I know we haven't used it in 25 years, but one day <laughs> this is going to come in handy. We're going to need it when we need it. Um, you're keepers. And then how many of you would be um, tossers? You're just like, man, if we haven't used it in three years, we're not going to ever use it. I'm going to throw it out. And then how many of you are people who say, we may not use it, but somebody else would use it? How many of you are keepers? Like, I'm a keeper. I'm kind of sentimental. I like keeping things around the house for emergency purposes. Okay, some are a little bit. Maybe you're kind of in between. Uh, I'm a keeper. This is me. How many of you are, I'm a, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a tosser. I just like getting rid of stuff. Just getting rid of stuff. Our retiring Vision Church pastor, Inky, is like this. He's just like, get rid of it. If it's like 92 per, 98% uh, workable, just get rid of it. We're going to get rid of stuff. Uh, tossers. Some of you are tossers. How many of you are givers? Like, if I can't use it, someone else is going to use it. Okay. And many of us decided to withhold our vote this morning. Okay, awesome. Um, in, in our Alpha service, we had a couple, and both of them were, I forget which, what were, Matt and Michelle were both, they were both the same something or other. They're both tossers. They just like getting rid of stuff. Um, if you're a keeper and your spouse is a tosser, this is a big deal. This can have issues in your, in your marriage. Um, Olivia is definitely the tosser giver. I'm definitely the keeper, and so a lot of times she'll just like call AMVETS or call the, you know, whoever it is to come pick something. She's like, by the way, uh, about an hour, someone's going to come and pick up all this stuff, and she's got like all my stuff like that she wants to get rid of, and it's like on the curb. She's like, if you want to just go through and look at it, you can. Um, but as I think about this, as I was reading this passage, we're going through the book of James, as I read this passage that we're going to look at today, um, I really began to feel this like gnawing sense of, I think Allah is a lot more right than I am. I keep a lot more stuff than I ought to. It's not just, I'm, I'm not a hoarder or anything like that necessarily, but um, I think this passage is going to help us to see our relationship with stuff, with money, with our possessions, and what that means uh, through the lens of the gospel and how we can redeem that. Let's look at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James was the brother of Jesus. He was the half-brother in the sense that his father was biologically Joseph, where Jesus' um, stepfather was Joseph as he was conceived by the Spirit of God. They had the same mother. They grew up in the same home. James didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world until after Jesus had risen from the dead. Then all of a sudden, he's like, holy cow, everything that he said was true, and he ended up following his half-brother Jesus as the Savior to his grave, and James was the first book 
book of the New Testament that was written. So this is Christianity in its earliest form as it's written from the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Okay, don't tune out if you don't think you're rich. But now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Okay, James, don't mess around. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is God's word. If you're new, um, yeah, James is, he tells it like it is. He doesn't care about your feelings. He's just like, hey, this is the truth. There's an urgency. I want to get it out. Now, as you've been, if you've been tracking with us and you've been going through the book of James, you understand that when James was writing, specifically addressing Christians, he will say, listen, brothers, or listen, brothers and sisters, depending on your version of the Bible, says, listen, brothers. He shrouds his audience in their identity as a member of the family of God in relation to Jesus. Now, here he doesn't say, now listen, brothers. He says, now listen, you rich people. And so what he's doing is he's talking to people who define their worth not by their relationship with God or Jesus, but by their relationship with money. In other words, he's talking to people who are rich, but they don't follow Jesus. And as he's talking to them specifically, he's hoping that Christians, most of whom were poor, would overhear this and find comfort and hope in the words that he says, but at the same time to be warned not to pursue wealth, not to think that because they've got a lot that their lives are better. He warns them as by way of overhearing to say, listen to what I have to say to the rich because this is a message for you as well. Now, some of you may not feel like you're rich. There is a... Uh, well, not there's a, but there's a daughter of mine named Elise. She's um, a little, she's our youngest one. But when she was like maybe four, five, six years old, she would ask me questions. The same question every now and then. She would say, Daddy, are we rich? Are we rich? I don't know why she asked that question. Maybe, you know, she's learning about rich and poor or whatnot. But she would ask, are we rich? And I would say, what do you think? She's like, I don't know, are we? I'd say, yeah, I think we're rich. We're rich. We've got everything that we need. Like, we've got family, we've got church, we've got a home, we've got everything that we need. We're rich. And besides, if there's something we don't have, did you know that daddy's daddy, daddy's father is very, very rich? And she said, you mean harabaji? <laughs> you mean grandpa? Which one, your dad or mommy's dad? I was like, no, not that, not your grandfather. I'm talking about my father in heaven. Like, our God is very rich. And when there's something that we need, we can ask him for it. She may not have thought we were rich, but I've always felt like I was rich because of what I have in Jesus, my relationship to him. People may not think we are, but I think we are. For you, it may be the same, or for you, it may be like you feel like you're not rich. You feel like you're not rich because you've got the iPhone 5 instead of the iPhone, I'm sorry, you've got the Apple Watch 5 instead of the Apple Watch 7. Or you've got just the iPhone 7 instead of the iPhone 12. Or because you've got five people in your family and you only have four cars and so you've got to share four cars amongst five people. Or because you feel like your home is not as nice as someone else's home. You may feel that way. But did you know 
There's a website, and, and I've talked about this often, called the Global Rich List, which I think is now defunct, because when I went to it the other day, it said, you can buy this domain name. But it was called the Global Rich List, where you can type in your annual income, and it will tell you how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. Did you know that if you make $60,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the richest people in the world? $60,000, you're in the top 1%. Again, you may not think you're rich because you look at other people in your work or you look at other people in your neighborhood or you look at other people in your uh, local community center or at, at church. You might not think you're rich, but if you make $60,000 a year, you're in the top 1%. Can I tell you something? When James says, now listen, you rich people, he's very much talking to people like you and me, except for the fact that we follow Jesus. He's talking to us. What does he have to say to people like you and me? There's a warning. There's a comfort. There's also a warning. What are we going to see about our stuff, our money, our wealth? Two things today that we see from the Word of God here. There's many that you could say, but I just want to bring out two that I think encapsulate this. The first thing is this. If you fall in love with it, okay, if you fall in love with it, money will lie to you, will break its promises, and will be gone before you know it. If you fall in love with money, okay, the pursuit of money, it's going to lie to you, it's going to break its promise, it's going to make you happy, and it's going to be gone before you know it. We see that here. Don't argue with me. He says it right here. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. Okay, here's what he's saying. I, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know, people like this, maybe in your circle of friends, maybe as a young adult, maybe as a single person, you just had a, a circle of friends that you hung out with, and there was this guy this, like, dude who his reputation preceded him, or this girl whose reputation preceded her. Good people. Like, we like hanging out. They're good friends. We celebrate each other's birthdays. But whenever they get into a romantic relationship, they always got issues. They always got problems. Like, they have a difficult time committing. They have a difficult time. They have uh, eyes that wander to other people. You know, I don't know if you know people like that. But in your circle of friends, you got somebody like this perhaps, and, and or one of your friends is, is about to date someone or being pursued by someone or wants to pursue someone like that. And others are like, oh, dude, you got to be careful. You got to be careful with that one. She's fun to hang out with, or he's good to hang out with. He's a really good friend. He's a really good companion. But be careful. Don't fall in love with him. Don't fall in love with her, because once you do, it's going to be dangerous. He'll lie to you. He'll break his promises. He'll be gone before you know it. If someone said that to you, would you heed their warning? If you're about to go out with a guy or go out with a girl and other people are like, dude, I've heard a lot about them. Like I've seen people who've been bit by them. Would you heed that warning? Because that's what James is doing here. He's not talking about a guy. He's not talking about a girl. He's talking about something we all have a tendency to fall in love with. It's either money or the pursuit of it. James says, be careful. Because money itself, not a bad thing. You understand this. Money itself is not a bad thing. You can do great things with money. You can do awful things with money. But there are many rich people in the Bible who did amazing things. Abraham was extremely rich. King David was extremely rich. King Solomon was extremely rich. Job, the innocent sufferer, was extremely rich. Joseph of Arimathea was extremely rich. There are people in the book of Acts who are rich, who sold their fields. Barnabas was rich. There are many rich people who did great things. So when he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail, he's not saying just because you have money. Money's not the issue. He's saying the issue is our hearts. The issue is your heart. You put your sense of worth and define yourself by how much you have. I'm going to break this down, and we're going to turn up the heat a little bit in just a few minutes. 
But I want to help us to see this for what it is. Here's what he says. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. Why? Because there's a lie that we've been told. We've been told that money, if you have enough of it, is going to make you happy. Haven't we been told that? I mean, that's what, we, that's what we think, because money can buy things. I read somewhere money can't buy happiness, but it can buy chocolate, which is the second best thing. Maybe you don't like chocolate. Maybe you're allergic to it, but you feel like sometimes, don't you, that money can buy you something that's going to make you happy. The more you have it, the better you feel. What James is doing, he's exposing that for the lie that it is. He says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Wow. He says, your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Why is he saying this? Why is he warning us? Because 2,000 years ago, the issues of the heart are still as the, the same as the issues of today, aren't they? Don't we have a desire to accumulate more and more money and wealth and stuff for whatever reason? We know money's not going to buy us happiness, at least up here. But we still try, don't we? There's a study that, that came out, I, for, I forget, I, I, yeah, I forget where it was, but said that um, the 49 richest people in America, according to Forbes magazine, there was an interview done with them, and the great majority of them said, you know what, we've never actually felt happy. And yet we still try through money. There's a um, documentary called Lucky that came out on HBO, and I've mentioned this before, but Lucky traces the stories of people who won the mega millions, over $20 million in the lottery, just traces their story. It's fascinating. I haven't seen it, but I've read many plot summaries on it and re read a lot of articles about it. It's fascinating. There's this one guy named, uh, named he's a Vietnamese uh, refugee immigrant named, named Quang, and what he did was, he, he was always like, he was a family guy. Like Vietnamese, he said, we, we love family, family's everything to us. Always close with his family. Hit the jackpot, got $22 million. And immediately, he said, people in the family started fighting over how much they ought to get. He's like, guys, this was not, I mean... We just got a great thing. Why are we fighting? And so his last-ditch effort in order to, to even things out was he built five homes right next to each other on the same road, said, we're each going to get one. Can we live peaceably? And he said, they're still fighting. Some of the people decided not to even live in the home because they couldn't get along with each other. Think, if I just hit the lottery, I could retire. My life will be happy. But money can't buy happiness. Don't buy the lie. Because if you fall in love with money and the pursuit of it, it'll lie to you. It's going to break you. It's going to break its promises. There's another couple. They want a, a hundred some million dollars, hundred some million dollars, and they said, we've seen it happen. We've seen people get, get changed by money. And so here's what they said. We're not going to let money change us. We're not going to change our lifestyle. We're going to just live the same way we did, put the hundred million away somewhere, and for a year they lived like that. And then the itch to start using that money came in, right? It's hard to have a hundred million dollars in your back pocket and not use it. So they started spending money, and all of a sudden they're like, who have we become? Like people started fighting to have some of their money, friends, people, they, just people started coming out of the woodwork. So what they did was they said, we can't live here anymore. So they moved down here to Florida, living on a beach town, used that $100 million, but they're like, we've got everything, but we don't even know who we are anymore. We feel so lonely is the word that they used. 70% of people who hit the mega millions have lost it all. 30% of those who hit the lottery ended up committing suicide, the mega millions. Money can't buy happiness, but why do we try? You know why we try? Because money has this power over us that nothing else has. 
Do you remember Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12? Nah, Luke chapter 12, maybe. He says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money, but it actually says God and mammon. What is mammon? Like, none of us know what mammon is. Like, what in the world is mammon? Why didn't they translate that? Because, you know, when something gets translated into another language, the only words that don't get translated and just get left as they are in their original language are names. And what Jesus was saying and the translator Luke was saying was that money is actually a being, a sinister, evil, wicked being that when you begin to bow down and worship mammon, it has a power over you that nothing else has. You've experienced this, haven't you? Like the, the, the lure and the temptation of money causes you to do strange things in order to get it. It's a great friend, but it's an awful lover. It's a good and an amazing servant, but it's a horrific master. Andy Crouch says the reason why money is so particularly powerful in our lives is because of three things, and maybe you can identify with this. Number one, he says, because money is fungible, right, as opposed to like NFTs. Fungible means you can use it, you can trade it for infinite number of different things. So you can take money and you can buy things that you think will give you comfort. You can use money and you can buy what you think is going to give you status or pleasure or a sense of security or a sense of safety. We use money to buy different things and for an infinite number of things, we're able to procure what we didn't think we could have before. Money is fungible and therefore we want more of it because we think we can gain more stuff with it. O.J. Simpson, some of you are too young to remember O.J. Simpson. He used to be an amazing football player, but he was most famous because I think in 1994 he was on trial for, on a murder trial. And everyone believed that he was guilty, but he had a lot of money, had a dream team of lawyers. And in the middle of this, I think it was like, I want to say it's like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day for like a 90-day trial or something like that. Um, he was paying all this money. In the middle of the trial, this is on court record, some reporter asked him, OJ, what would you do? What would, what would this trial be like if you didn't have all this money? And they asked him, and the first thing he did is he chuckled, and then he said, if I didn't have all this money, I'd already be in jail. Because money can get us things that we couldn't have otherwise. One of my friends who's in the legal system said the, 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 the government um, public defenders and attorneys that they give to people who are unable to afford a lawyer, their motto is these people are guilty until proven rich. Not innocent until proven guilty. They're guilty until proven rich. Money is fungible, number one. That's why it's so powerful. Number two... Number two, it's countable. Over and against any other kind of power that you have in this world, you can count money. If you're, a, if you're a, what you think of as a powerful CEO, how powerful are you? You don't know how much power you actually have. You can't quantify power, but you can quantify money. You know exactly how much power you have when it comes to money because it's unlike anything else. You can count it on your, you can see it on your bank statement. You can see it on, on, on a balance sheet at the end of the day. You can see how much power you've got. And then number three, money is storable. That means that unlike any other kind of power, which if you've got it, you've got to wield it. You've got to use it now. Money can be stored up, it can be accumulated, and it can be used later. Therefore, even if you don't have it now, there's a desire to accumulate more and more and more, to acquire more of it, because in the future, we think this is going to be able to provide something for me. Money is powerful in that sense. And the question is, what are you doing with that power? 
Because look what these rich people did. They've got it, they've got, they've got a lot of it, and it says, your wealth has rotted. Why? You've got so much of it that you're not even able to use any of it because you're just hoarding it for yourself. Not only that, it says, moths have eaten your clothes. You've got so much clothes, you're, you're so fixated on getting more and more and more that the clothes you've got have holes in it because moths are eating it. You don't even enjoy what you've got because you want more. How much more do you need, Rockefeller was asked, the richest man in the world. How much more do you need? He said, just a little more. Okay, just a little more. How much more do we need? Maybe the answer is just a little more. And where does it stop? Not only that, he says your gold and silver are corroded. So all that stuff that you got, you can't even use it. Can't even use it properly. And then he says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Why? Because you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Okay? You've hoarded all of this stuff. We're a culture that loves hoarding. Whether you're a tosser, a giver, or a keeper, we've hoarded our stuff. Like, this week for summer school, uh, the children were doing um, tie-dyeing their shirts. And so they asked parents to send in adult T-shirts that the kids could wear kind of as a smock. I looked there, and I got like 80 T-shirts. Like every time I go to a retreat, synod retreat, get another T-shirt. Sometimes they say, oh, we've got extras. Pastor, can you take another one? Oh, we'll give you three. What do I have? What do I need three T-shirts for? I've got like so many T-shirts, so many T-shirts. I used to say every time I go to a mission trip, every time I go to a retreat, go to a con we just went to a conference in California. I got like four T-shirts. Like, dude, what am I going to do with these things? I just, they're just sitting there in a box Saul is like, you got to get rid of it. I'm going to get rid of it. I'll live on top of you. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to get rid of it when I get home. Some of you, it's not T-shirts, though. It's shoes. You got so many shoes that you don't even know what to do with. I mean, I, I remember I went to bust out a pair of shoes from my garage, and, and the soles had fallen off of it. It's like, that's how long it's been since I wore them. The glue got eaten up through because of the summer, the Florida heat. It's like, oh, man, I guess I can't wear these anymore. Some of us, it's shoes. Some of it's, it, it's cars. Some of it's, 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 it's us, it's toys. Whatever it might be. This is a problem in America. You know why? Because garages don't store cars anymore. They store stuff and more and more stuff. And if your garage is already full, what do you need? You need garage shelving units. They didn't have those things like 20 years ago because we didn't have so much stuff. Not only that, if you don't have enough room in your garage and in your garage shelving unit and every nook and cranny of your house, you can actually pay money to rent out air-conditioned storage units because your house is not big enough to store all the stuff you've got, and you can pay money for someone to take care of all of your stuff. That's going to be the stuff of a garage sale one day. And it's not getting any worse. You know how I know? Because Bill Gates invested millions of dollars become an investor in the eighth largest storage unit company in, the, in America called Storage Mart or something like that because he knows we got a problem with stuff. We're hoarding it all. Now, you might think that's not that bad. But the second thing that I want to show you is why this is really bad. Okay, why this is really bad. Second thing we see is that when you love money, okay, loving money will make you selfish and indifferent to suffering. That's a problem. That's a problem. Money hasn't changed me. Money doesn't own me, we say. But can you hear the cries of people who are suffering? Or has the grinding machine of accumulating more stuff blind, uh, blinded our eyes and deafened our ears? Look at what he says, verse 4. He says, look! Why? Because you're not looking. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields 
are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. See, there's something about money that has a way of changing us. Like, we believe that. That's why, that's why when you come across a celebrity that you think is really nice, you're like, oh, man, they become more appealing to you, don't they? Like someone that you like and you find out they're a jerk, you're like, ah, you know what, maybe not. You find out that this, this K-pop singer or this Netflix actor or whomever it is that you really love, you find out, oh, I heard that they were a jerk. They didn't tip their waiter. Oh, my gosh, I don't like them as much anymore. But then you find out that they're really good people, really nice people. You're like, oh, my gosh, you know what? I want to learn more about them because there's something about, something about what happens when you know someone who's got a lot and you feel like, you know what, but they, don't, they haven't been changed by it. One of my friends met um, an actress named Kristen Bell at the airport, and my friend was saying, um, we're, we're waiting at baggage claim, and I, I noticed her, and I just started talking to her. Kristen Bell was the voice of Anna, right, in, in, in what was that, Let It Go? Frozen, right? Um, the vo voice of, of Anna. She was also some other stuff. Veronica, was she Veronica Mars? I don't know. She's someone, famous lady. So my friend was talking and said, wow, Kristen Bell was like the nicest person, like so down to earth, so humble, so willing to take pictures. Like that makes her endearing and appealing because we want to know that, it, that money doesn't have to change us. When I was in, in L.A. a couple years ago, I saw on uh, Rodeo Drive, I saw a basketball player named Ben Simmons. He wasn't very nice in his Lamborghini. And someone's like, hey, Ben, can you, can you tell us something? Tell us, can you say something to us? He wouldn't say anything to Ben. Can we get a picture? He wouldn't say anything. He just sat there. I was like, oh, man, that's kind of a bummer. Then uh, I, I saw it, at, again, at LAX. I saw LaMelo Ball, basketball player. And uh, I was talking to him for just a few seconds. But I was like, man, this guy's really nice. And I started liking him a little bit more. You read about celebrities. I, I, I did this Google search. Who are the nicest celebrities? Like celebrities who are really nice. Ed Sheeran was at, at the top of many lists. Keanu Reeves, like nice guy, super nice guy. Um, Hugh Jackman, did you know that huge jacked man? Hugh Jackman is a really nice guy. It's crazy. Like, so I'm like, man, these guys are awesome. Because we want to know that it's possible because the majority of people we see, there's a lot of people that get changed by money. You know this. Do you know someone who, they used to be really nice. It's really, really uh, selfless. It's really kind, compassionate. They started getting money. They got their first huge job, and all of a sudden they became jerks. Or you felt like they're too important for you now, or they've got too much for you now. I don't think they meant to change like that. I don't think they wanted to close their circle and make it tighter and tighter and tighter, but sometimes people do that because money has a way of making us self-centered, myopic, because we only want more and more and more and more and more. There was a... Um, this one study that was done, this was fascinating, Cal Berkeley, at Berkeley University. They did this study in Northern California, and they went to a crosswalk, and they just observed many, many cars. In a crosswalk, you have to give the right of way to the person, to the pedestrian. And so they observed, um, just for a long, long time, they observed these cars going by. They said that people who drove luxury cars are four times more likely to not stop at the intersection. Just go on through, right? Because something about having a lot makes us feel more important than other people. Maybe not you, but in the general population, 
four times more likely. There's another study that was done by this psychology magazine, and it showed people pictures um, and says, can you, can you, um, do you know what emotion they're expressing here? And people who had more money had a lot harder time understanding and empathizing with people who were showing negative or sad emotions. And one of the chief ways of showing compassion is understanding, reading the emotions of people. And those who had a lot were unable to do that to a higher degree than those who had little. Here, here's, there was a, a TED Talk called Does Money Change You? Paul Piff was the name of the guy who did it. This was fascinating. They, he, he set up this Monopoly game. So we're playing Monopoly. And what he did was every other person was given twice as much money to start, could roll two dice instead of one, and every time they passed go, they got a lot more money than the regular person got. He said as they're watching, after just a few rolls of the dice, the people who had more began to treat other people, other players, in a condescending and degrading way. Were mean to them, talked a lot more, talked condescendingly, were more rude in how they played, even though it was just a game. It was a game, and it was set up. Like, they didn't do anything, just randomly one, two, one, two, one, two, just randomly set up, but they thought that they were better than other people just because they had a little bit more. Because, you see, money has a way of turning us inward and keeping us deaf to the cries of those around us. This is what he says. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. What he was, what, what he was saying was that, okay, you've got a farmer. Okay, farmers in those days were not like what you think, like, I don't know, uh, Dwight Schrute from Schrute Farms. He's not like that. If you're, a, if you're a farmer in those days, you need to be wealthy enough to own an estate. So farmers put you in the top one, two, three occupations in those days, according to one commentary that I read. So they've got these, the, the, this farmland, and they bring workers on, usually day laborers. Either they were slaves or they were day laborers who had come, and these guys literally work hand to mouth. So they work one day, they get money, they eat that day, they need to work the next day or else they have no food. And so he brings these people on to mow his lawn and to harvest his crops. And what James is saying is, you rich people, you didn't give that day's wages to your workers. He says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. He's like, do you hear it? The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. They've reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, but they can't even reach the ears of the person who's right next to them, for whom these workers are working. Here's how you know that you've been blinded by a pursuit of more and more and more and more. Here's how you know that you've begun to love money. The things that once moved your heart, the people that once moved your heart, the things that you, the causes you once gave your lives to, the mission field, the refugee, the poor, the unborn, the unwed mother, the people who are hurting in this world, their cries no longer mean anything to you. You no longer hear them because you're, built, you're focusing on building your portfolio, building up your net worth, building up your own treasures on earth. And what James is saying to the people who are poor being oppressed, he's like, they may not have heard you, but God hears you. Oh, and you better believe rich people, he's saying, that God hears their cries also, the cries that you've chosen to ignore. What James is saying You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. James is saying the reason you've been given all of this stuff 
is not so that you get hoarded and let it rot and get moth-eaten, but the reason you've been given all this is so that you can give to the people who are crying and suffering and victims of injustice. God doesn't bless you more to raise your standard of living. He blesses you more to raise your standard of giving in order that you could be the agent of God in this broken world. We weren't meant to hoard all of this stuff for ourselves. And to give it in order that others might find life in the name of Jesus through you. That's why you've been blessed. That's why you're in the top 1%. Not so that you can buy that 10th big screen TV so that you have one in every single room of your home. If you do, that's fine. Just don't be blind to the cries of those who are suffering. Because he says... Your money, your wealth, and what you didn't pay are testifying against you. Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? Your money is speaking a testimony about you, for or against you. What will be the testimony at the end of your life that your money speaks? Will your money say, they had the biggest closet of anyone that I knew. They had more designer bags and more shoes than anybody that I knew. They had more dresses, more suits, more fine Italian tailored suits than anybody. They drove the finest cars. They had more money in their bank account only to have left it to their descendants. Could there be a better story? Maybe your wealth will cry out and it will say they fed orphans who were broken by war in Ukraine. They helped many lost people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus when they generously gave to their house church. They helped start many, many churches in Tanzania because of the ministry that they partnered with. They gave of themselves in order that those who are voiceless could have a voice and could find hope in Christ. What is your wealth going to testify about? What is your wealth testifying about you today? Because the wealth of the rich, ungodly here their testimony cried out, and it said, you've lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The image here is clear. It's a fattened calf. We can imagine we're all calves in a field, and we're bumping around trying to fight for the little bit of grass that's here, and then you see one of our own be taken over into a nice, beautiful field. And you know how to read, and you see it says Kobe or Wagyu or whatever it is, beef, and you're like, oh, it's the elite the elite cattle. They go there. They're eating the best foods. They're eating the best grass. They're not injected with anything yucky. They're eating wonderful grass, other things like that also. They're not bumping into each other. They've got all the room to roam. They're even being massaged day and night. Why are they, what, what's up with that? They're listening to classical music. And here we are. And what James is saying is, don't get it twisted. When you envy them, you don't realize that they're the fattened calf that's being led to the slaughter. What good is it if you've got all of the best clothes only to be buried in one fine Italian suit in a coffin six feet under the ground? What good is it if you drive the nicest car and you're on a highway to hell? What good is that? What good is it if you're flying first class all the days of your life if the destination that you're heading towards isn't the place where you want to go? Because you see, he says, you've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. That was the legacy. That was the testimony that the money of the rich was speaking against them. 
But James says, God hears the cries of the innocent. Because you see, it wasn't just these innocent workers back then who were taken innocently. There was another one who was as well. Jesus Christ came into this world and he redefines wealth and worth and value. He was rich beyond measure, but he traded the crown and all that that represented, trading your crown for a cross in order that he could show us what true wealth really is. He who was rich beyond measure became poor for us in order that we who are poor could become rich in him. Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer who hears your cries and he knows your suffering. He hears the cries of the weak and he says, justice will be mine. All of the injustices and all of the wrongs will one day be made right. What if we, what if we were to realize with this one life that I've been given and with, with what God has entrusted to me, man, I could either leave it all behind or I could store up treasures in glory. What if, we, what if we could remember that high school student when we were building, before this building was ever built, and we're talking about what it meant to give in order that the work of Jesus would be done. And as he remembered the woman who broke her alabaster jar and gave all of that to Jesus, I, I remember being in, in a meeting. We were in missions training, and, and someone came to me, and they're like, hey, you know, DL, someone wanted to give you something. So I came out, and... Um, I came out too late. The high school student had left had given this money to one of our adults, but it was, a, it was a wad of money. And he said, you know, this is all that I have in my savings account. But when I think about how my life has been changed by the gospel, and I think about what God can do through this building in which we now sit, if I, if I gave, like that would do so much more than if I kept it to myself and I needed to run home and get this out of this box and give it now or else if I waited, I wouldn't have done it because he believed that it was more worthy an investment of his money to give for the sake of the eternal kingdom than to keep it for himself. What if we began to, to dream of what our money could be? It doesn't have to be a lot. It's not about how much you give. Really, it's about the attitude and it's about how little you hold back from Jesus. He said, a woman who gave two copper coins worth less than a penny gave more than all the rich because she gave everything that she had to live on. It's the attitude of the heart that Jesus said, I don't want to just give a little bit. I don't want to just give out of the excess. I don't want to just give my crown. I want to give everything that I am. And because he did, his testimony continues to change lives thousands of years later. Either we will leave our treasures behind or when we die, we'll go and we'll pick it up in glory. I pray that at harvest that we would make wise choices to realize that what we think we own is really on loan and God's entrusted it to us in order that we would be his hands and his feet to bring it to the people in need in order that the world could see the beauty of Christ in us. Let's pray together. Here's where... My brothers and sisters, the testimony of this young brother in high school matters because what we choose to do right now, okay, remember the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon is me, difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is you, difference between I was blessed and I was deceived is not by how you hear but what you do in response to it, right? What's going to take this from being, oh, that was a good, 
That was a good one. Versus my life is changed and other lives are changed is what you decide to do right now with what God's entrusted to you. Guys, we are rich. We live in the richest nation in the world, the richest nation that's ever existed in human history, and we are surrounded by nations, billions and billions of people who are struggling to make ends meet. What would it look like for us to use what God's placed in our hands to give it back to the Lord in order that others might be blessed? Maybe it's making a renewed commitment to give our tithe, to give his tithe to our church. Maybe it's a commitment to say, you know what, I'm going to begin to support our missionary a little bit more. Maybe it's to say, you know what, that link for giving to Ukraine is still open. The war's still ongoing. There's still a need out there. Maybe it's to say as we prepare to, to do more work for the kingdom of God through our church, I, I want to give an earmarked gift. Or, hey, if there's someone in need, I want to give this to our church so that our elders and our, 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 our leaders can decide if there's someone who needs this. But the difference between, okay, that was a good message, and your life and the lives of countless others being changed is what you do right now with the word of God. Let there be fruit. Because Jesus said if there's, if, there's, if there's fruit, it could be 30, 60, 100-fold. And how we respond is going to determine the fruitfulness of this word in your life. So let's make a commitment, whatever that might be, to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, use what you've placed in my hands for your glory. It's rotting in my hands, but when I give it to you, it feeds the multitudes. Let's pray for that for a minute, and then I'll pray for us, and then we're going to respond that we might become more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for, for James. I, man, I just like thinking about this. I wonder if like it, it ever felt like for like 33 years, James just denied Jesus. Like how hard that must have been for Jesus. But then seeing in the big picture, after Jesus had died and resurrected, like James actually believed. After 30 years of seeming like nothing, he believed and, and then he just went all in for Jesus, gave everything. And through the message that he wrote, it's impacting our lives and James is showing us that you, you can't just talk a good game. You can't just say you're a Christian. You can't just say you follow a Messiah who gave everything and we give nothing. Father, James teaches us that if faith doesn't work, then our faith doesn't work. So, Father, would you convict us and challenge us and now let the word become flesh in order that throughout this world they would see the ripple effects of our joyful obedience. Make us please, make us more like Jesus. It's less of us. It means more of you. And God, would you take everything? We thank you and we love you. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.